Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Susie's story needed to be heard. It helps us to understand that we matter. To understand whoever the person that did wrong should be brought to justice. To be that supportive pillar for others. Listen to her inspirational journey in her words. Hello everybody, I have Susie Dent with me. Susie bravely came forward to British police in 2014, taking the stand in court as a bad character witness in the criminal trial of one of the UK's best known TV personalities, Rolf Harris. Stepping up and speaking out to support other victims is what her purpose is. This is what, this was the beginning of historical sexual assault and abuse cases against prominent men in position of power. the biggest movement in the world today that encourages women to speak out the me too movement apart from this she is also mrs earth australia 2017 i would like to understand her journey and the confidence level that she had throughout her life from where she started to becoming mrs earth australia Hi, in 2017 thank you so much for having show. me awesome and thank you for being here and thank you thank you letting us hear and your story yes i, I just side. took pieces of information from all over this place that was perfect just perfect thank you um, <laughs> that sounds sounds fantastic what a great story um hi everyone lovely to be here with you wow my story from when i started so i was one of those very confident children i was quite a go getter sporty rather than academic i um i started work when i was 12 i um I would uh do babysitting and teach get taught the kid across the road how to read. I worked on um uh I worked for a hairdressing salon when I was 12. They uh part-time on Thursday nights and Saturday mornings. Um and I didn't tell them how old I was and they thought I was 15 and I was at 12. I was quite well developed in the bust department, you see. So um I ended up working uh working as a as an apprentice and I would uh wash hair and take out perm rods and and sweep floor and answer the phone absolutely loved it uh it was great it was really good uh and uh but uh, after a couple of months somebody um dogged me in that I was only 12 so i you know i got the sack if you like uh, but it it started my love of hairdressing i used to always um play with my doll's hair and doll they had the hair that grew that you pull out of the top of the head and i was always braiding and playing so i loved uh, that really set me up for my career as a hairstylist and a makeup artist later on um through school through high school um uh well I should say after that job left uh, a girl I went to high school with who was a year older than me she was 13 she worked on a farm for her neighbor who was an this Italian guy who had a big farm um and uh so at 12 I went along and started to work on the farm which meant afternoons doing farming and in the mornings we'd go him and his two sons and her and me we'd go to the markets together these big markets in Sydney uh or in the suburbs of Sydney and sell the vegetables so you'd be up at like 2:30 a.m. I loved it I was very independent 12 year old you know I felt really grown up it uh, gave me a chance to um earn a bit of money um and I I I like farming and being outside and uh, so I really enjoyed it um it was good it um however a bad experience happened to me when I was 12 and if you would like me to talk about that now Smith or I can absolutely um, so and, and I don't I talk about this now because um it's funny when we're young um experiences can happen to us uh within our relationships with people 
that can really set us up for the rest of our life. So I was in a relationship with this man that I worked for who, you know, I trusted. He was like old enough to be my grandfather. Now, one day when I was 12, the 13-year-old girl led me astray into a tent that was like a sunshade. And um, the old man was waiting in there for me. And I sat down next to him and I thought we were going to have a chat. And um, we didn't have a chat. He was making all these kind of noises that I now know were kind of sexual noises. And he put his hand underneath my T-shirt inside my little thin elastic training bra and um, felt my breasts up and rubbed his raspy old gnarly fingers across my nipples. And, you know, it was really, it was not cool. I sat there numb, uh, speechless. Um, and when it was all finished, he paid me some money, which was my pay and a little bit more. And I was like, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. It was time for me to go home. I waited out the front of the farm for my dad to come and pick me up. Um, I didn't say anything to my parents. I was brought up by a Sunday school teacher, by God as a modest, say prayers every night, Sunday school, church, everything. I was not, back then, This we're talking about 1974, 12-year-old girls were children. We didn't have access to social media. We wore kids' clothes, you know. We didn't have anything, any exposure to anything. I wasn't allowed to watch, um, I was only allowed to watch PG and only just when I was 12 in my house. So it really did my head in. I didn't have a good relationship with my mother because she was a narcissist. So she, I knew she would have blamed me anyway. So I kept it to myself, as we do. And many of us, the statistics show so many women and boys girls and boys get abused and the thing is it's like when you look at it in the whole grand scheme of things regardless if I felt dirty and awful and whatever it was pretty tame as far as what a sexual assault is there was no rape there was no penetration you know however it doesn't really matter what happens the tr my trust was blown as well my trust with women I couldn't trust this girl anymore I thought she was my friend she was not my friend right um, I, I, I never went and worked for this guy again. I couldn't trust him. He was in a position, I was working for him. My trust was blown. I couldn't, I was like, I was, I, was, I was kind of imploding a little bit inside my head. So I put it inside my little mind box, which is yeah. what we do. You know, we stick it inside a box and we don't deal with it. And we just, poof, it's too hard. We just keep moving forward. I didn't go back. It, um, however, it, it really changed how I felt about myself and my body. Um, I come from a, a line of big-breasted women, so my boobs kept growing. Uh, and I already, at 12, I was already being hit on by 18-year-old boys, much to the horror of my parents. They didn't, um, I wasn't educated into, into sex and stuff. I was just given a Bible, which isn't really enough. Um, and uh, so I really didn't understand what was going on. I was in um, the first year of high school when I was 12. Uh, and I started strapping my breasts down as they grew with two bras and making things smaller. I was a sporty girl. I was a swimmer, so I was really fit. And being in a swimsuit, I felt really self-conscious. You know, I really didn't like being exposed. Um, so that kind of set me up for my self-esteem journey. And as I grew older and my breasts got bigger, I think my self-esteem continued to plummet. When I was 13, I went to, my mother cuddled me for the last time. When I went to cuddle her, she pushed me away and went, get those things away from me, meaning my breasts. So that was the last time she ever cuddled me. And so that was like, when your mother, the mother figure, the only feminine figure that you have goes, they're bad, then you're bad. 
it was my fault how I looked. It was my body. I had this body that men looked at in a sexual way when I was a child and it kept going. So I, I kind of compensated and went through life by dressing down. I covered my body up. I wore baggy clothes. Um, it was easier for me to be around my mother if I wore baggy clothes and I didn't wear mascara or anything because I look really plain without makeup on because I'm blonde. Um, so I dressed down. I, I started doing this pretty much when I was 19, um, really, with a vengeance um, because I started work. When I left school, I, I started work and I worked in a bank and I got sexually assaulted in a bank. This is in the 80s, so it didn't just happen to me. It happened to everybody. I got locked in a safe for the assistant bank manager so he could fill me up. I got sent home by the accountant because he liked to look at my legs. And I was the only girl who worked there that wasn't allowed to wear the pants as part of the uniform. I was only allowed to wear the little dress. Um, I had to learn how to kind of survive in this world with men who wanted to dictate what I wore so they could look at me. So I did. So I ordered a bank uniform. There was two sizes, actually, I think it was three sizes too big. So it was huge, it was really long and I didn't hem it and I didn't do anything with it. Um, and I couldn't say anything because it wasn't part of the code of conduct, how big or small the dress was or how short it was. At the same time, I was working a second job in this um, uh, a restaurant and the, and the restaurant manager, the, the, the uniform had these slits up the side to let the knees and he liked to take me to the office, this is the 80s, all right, and rip the dress to the, my dress to the waist every shift, right? Because that's how he got his jollies. And, and I'd get the stapler off his dress and I'd go, chink, 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 and I'd staple the hem back again and I'd go to work and the next night it'd happen again. I have a really wicked sense of humour, all right? Now, these things weren't funny. These are things that I was going through. Um, and I don't know where it came from, but I got this, this rubber cockroach, right? Now, both these men liked me to make them coffee, all right? And I got this rubber cockroach and this very same week, I made them both coffees, right, with this cockroach in it. And it was so real. In Australia, we have big cockroaches, they're big, <laughs> they're massive. <laughs> they're not little things, they're like, ah! Um, so I put the, co put the cockroach, first of all, in the accountant's coffee. And the screams from this man, when he got to the bottom of his coffee cup, were priceless, it was great. And I did it to the other guy as well, and he completely freaked out. Neither man ever asked me to make them a coffee again. The dress ripping stopped. Um, I, I was able to start wearing the pants again. Um, I empowered myself at 19 and I realised that what I looked like and how I wore things uh, and how I behaved was how I needed to empower myself. Um, so that was my episode then and, and I finished high school and, you know, that was the bank obviously and I realised that my passion um, was makeup because I'd always been into makeup. Uh, I had my mother was an Avon lady, so I was surrounded by Avon and the smells of these tiny little lipsticks that were really cut really beautifully. It was lovely. Uh, and back then, there was only one school in the entire country of Australia uh, that was a theatrical arts college that trained people to be makeup artists. Mm -hmm. And I lived in Sydney, and uh, my father got me in because I was overseas uh, at the time, having a holiday, a backpacking holiday when I was twenty, and. He got me in, and which was great because I'd done my Duke of Edinburgh's award and I'd been quite an accomplished child, always achieving highly and being really self-confident and winning awards in sport, not so much academia. But um, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh is like a, uh, an award that uh, has a lot of social aspects to it. So there's a lot of volunteering in it. Um, and I did, I did that and learnt a lot about myself as I was a young person up until I finished high school at 17. And that helped me my entire life. 
get every job I've ever gone through for, which was great, which is really good. You know, it's good to, to build self to build your self confidence like that. You know, and self confidence and self esteem are actually two different things. You know, you can um, you can fake having self confidence, but you can't have you can't fake having self esteem. You know, sometimes you can push through things, so uh, it is different. And my self esteem kind of carried along for a little while until I was older and um, more assaults happened when I was overseas. Uh, I seemed to really travel through life. Uh, I felt like I had a neon sign on my head for men, for men and said, touch me, touch me. And they did. It was so weird, you know. And I never dressed in a sexually, um, um, a sexual looking way. I don't, feel, I don't wear things without sleeves. Never show my cleavage, you know. I wear shorts and I have sporty legs. Um, but I just seemed to attract all this unwanted attention. I trained as a makeup artist. It was awesome. It was absolutely what I was supposed to do. Uh, worked really hard in um, being a freelancer. And uh, in 1986, uh, I think it was in my third year, I was 24, um, I was working for Channel 7 Studios and uh, the biggest star uh, that they'd ever had there, Rolf Harris, uh, was coming to the studio to shoot, um, I think it was a promotional video for a show he had coming and I'd got the job, which was great. I was really excited about meeting Rolf Harris because I grew up with him with black and white TV uh, and uh, he was a major star in Australia uh, and in England and in a lot of you know places, uh, Malta, New Zealand, uh, places in Europe. Uh, he's an entertainer and an artist, um, became a friend of the Queen. Uh, so it's huge, really big deal. Uh, and uh, so I, got, I was uh, chosen to be his makeup artist for the day, which was great. Uh, the powers that be or the men that run uh, that ran Channel 7 Studios back then gave him the red carpet treatment as you do a star uh, and um, I met him as we did with the small crew and then he came into my makeup room and sat into the chair in the chair so the makeup rooms are quite little back then and they have a place for you to hang your wardrobe and like a mirror like if I was sitting in front of it, it's a mirror in front of me there was a door here and his brother was with him he was uh, his brother was talking to him Rob's sitting here I'm standing here doing makeup and, and I turned, I turned, you know, introduced myself and everything uh, and I'm, I'm touching his skin. You have to touch people's skin to see what sort of skin they've got so you know what sort of foundation to put on. If you've got a dry skin and you put a powder on, you can make it look really bad, you know. Um, and I'm touching his skin and the, the makeup chairs back then were a bit like uh, the old-fashioned um, barber chairs with, like, big, uh, big kind of... Um, uh, armrests and a big chair with a back with the, the head thing and he slipped his arm down underneath the, the chair and ran it up my leg right um and I didn't say anything because whilst we're talking to his brother you know up and down and I was wearing baggy shorts he kind of ran them up inside the leg of my shorts I'm like okay fine I turned around to the mirror it was really it's quite a shock because he's old and I didn't expect it. And I turned around, looked in the mirror, and the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you work with children. Because we did a lot of work with children. And, I, and when you work closely with someone, as I do, with people that like I do, I, as a makeup and hair artist, I invade people's aura. I mean, I touch people. You know, it's a different thing to standing there and talking to people. You have to be the right personality and the right person to touch people. And it's like an energy exchange thing. And I'm sitting there looking at this man and all of a sudden, you know, I see who he is because I'm looking into his eyes and I didn't like what I saw. And it wasn't the person, it wasn't the happy, jovial person that we see, that I'd seen for years on TV. That wasn't who he was. And that was interesting. 
Um, then his brother left and went upstairs and I took him into the studio uh, where he started talking to the director where we're getting, you know, the lights are all set up, ready to go. And they're, you know, they're just checking everything. And the director who was um, kind of his sort of age, um, they're standing there discussing me like I was a piece of meat, which again was um, interesting. Again, the 80s people, this is what happened to women in the 80s. It doesn't happen as much now, but it used to happen all the time. And as a woman, you couldn't actually talk back. You just had to smile yeah. and cop it on the chin and deal with it. Because if you spoke back, you were being aggressive. Um, so I just dealt with it as I had dealt with that so many times. Quite honestly, I thought they, I think they thought that the casting couch was alive and well from the 50s in their minds. Um, it was quite interesting. Um, but Rolf also, from then, he started touching me. There was, you know, probably maybe four other crew, all male, in the studio. None of them said anything. None, none of them did anything. You've got the sound guy, the lighting guy, etc. They didn't do anything. Um, Rolf would, uh, each time I go up to pat him down, uh, more, um, take the sweat off his face. Back then we used video, right, so the studio lights were really hot. So, and you couldn't have the air conditioner on because the air conditioners back then were too loud. They hadn't created lights that weren't hot and air conditioners that didn't make noise. Uh, so you just sweat, which is why I was wearing, you'd wear shorts all the time and runners because you're on cement floor, it's hot. So each time I'd go up to him, to Rolf, he would run his hands up my legs. Um, I had a long belt on because it was the 80s. He'd grab the belt and pull it towards him so he could pretend, so he could try and crotch grind. But it's full on. Um, and um, I'd slap his hand away. I had a, I had a pair of shorts on that had a rip in the thigh, which is when rips first started. And he'd try and shove his hand inside the rip of my shorts so he could, you know, it was quite persistent each time. Um, after a while, this would have happened all day, probably would have happened two dozen times. After a while, I was getting really bored with it. Um, I tried staying at the back of the room because I thought out of sight, out of mind, but he would still call on me just because he could. It was starting to be a bit of a game. Um, and then I'd leave the studio and I stayed outside the studio and uh, there was two younger guys who were my age and they knew I was really uncomfortable and really not having a good time. Uh, so they'd come out and it was absolutely necessary for me to do it. And I'd come in, they'd touch me again and I'd leave. That was my day. At the end of the day, uh, and the thing is, why, did I, why do I not say anything? We weren't allowed to say anything back then. Women were, in a way, kind of seen and not heard. Uh, if I had said anything, my job, right, is to not upset the talent. He was talent. Wow. If I had upset him, he could have completely, well, what we like to say in Australia, chucked a dummy spit, uh, walked out. I could have lost my job. I could have lost the job of everybody, all the crew that was with me. I could have cost the studio thousands of dollars and really, and end of my career, totally uh, gone. So I couldn't say anything. Uh, I said to let him touch me you know, regardless. Um, so at the end of the day, it's always the makeup artist's job to take off the makeup of the talent so, you know, they can leave. Sometimes people don't want to let, don't want to take it off because they look really nice. But back then, makeup was really thick. But there was no way I was going into my little makeup room with that man by myself. The fact that he'd had four or five people in there and was performing for them and, and didn't care that he was touching me, his attitude was whatever. Um, so I hid in a cupboard. There was like a broom cupboard um, and I could look out through the door up the hallway and I could see him standing there outside the kind of makeup room waiting for me where my kit was. Um, and then the powers that be, the men that ran it, came down the stairs from upstairs and, you know, took him outside and 
coaxed him into what I imagine was his waiting car with his brother and he left so I didn't have to do it because there's no one I was going to. When I went to, um, uh, so I packed up my staff and went and spoke to the makeup artist that was the supervisor of Channel 7, who was actually somebody that I knew. And I complained and I, you know, I said, I just spent the worst day being groped by a dirty old man. And she said to me, oh, I thought you knew. His nickname is the octopus. Flashback for me to when I was 12, being thrown to the lions by another woman. And that's exactly what had happened. And I really lost faith in this woman then, which is unfortunate. I would have loved to have had a heads up because I'm really good at psychology and controlling myself, just being warned. And it's great to be warned with talent. You know, if I've got an ego, you know how to strengthen the right way, you know what to do. I was given no warning. She was really flippant about it. She didn't care. And then she passed on this message to me. And which was pretty much upstairs passed a message to me telling me that they wanted to um, commend me on how I'd handled the situation. And I stood there and I thought, but I've only just complained. And then I realised that all these men were sitting upstairs in the control room watching. So I had the men upstairs watching. I had the men in the studio watching and they're all watching. And nobody says a thing and nobody stops it. I said, so thank goodness we're in 2020 now, or 2021, I should say, uh, and this sort of thing does not happen as much as it should, you know. Uh, and so that was in 1986 that that happened. And um, I happily worked as a makeup artist for years and years and years. I, um, from that moment, um, I didn't change what I wore. What I changed about myself was that Rolf Harris was the last man that ever touched me again without me wanting to or inviting him. I became very mouthy and exceptionally good at my use of the F word anytime someone got in my way. Um, I, uh, yeah, I told everybody uh, at the end, when I went home, my parents knew, my best friends knew. I didn't keep it a secret. Um, it was disappointing. Um, so I told everybody, my whole career, people have asked me, who's the best person and the worst person that you've worked for, with? And my career is now 30, coming on to 37 years long. The best person is whoever I've, you know, is, I've worked with at the time, but the worst person has always been him. Um, in 19, um, what, 2014, I was watching TV, actually it was 2013. I was watching TV, I was at home by myself uh, and watching, uh, sorry, no, I was at home watching a, um, I'll start that again. In 2014, I was watching a current affairs program about this girl who had come forward and was talking about how Rolf Harris had assaulted her when she was 15. She was part of a dance troupe uh, that was working with him and he had assaulted her and she had, um, she was bringing a case against him for sexual assault. And I watched this program um, and I saw how she was being treated online by the interviewer and the press. Uh, and she, um, and I, I knew that she wasn't lying because I had had my own experience with Rolf Harris. And I thought, I have to come forward for this woman because the 12-year-old girl inside of me who had been uh, assaulted and never said anything was listening to the 15-year-old girl inside this woman who was 49 going, I'm here, sister. I'm coming forward. So at the end of the show, I said nothing to my husband at the time. I just did a bit of emailing and I found out that it was called Operation U-Tree in the UK. 
I sent off an email, uh, missed the mark the first time, and then the second email I found the right place. And uh, they, the police over there contacted me. I'd said things like, I actually said the word the octopus and gave them some things that they might have not known. And they contacted me and that began my journey of um, being chosen by the judge to come forward as a bad character witness in the Rolf Harris in the Rolf Harris child sexual assault court case. Uh, it was a moment in time that I didn't think about. Uh, uh, it was it was nothing that I gave much thought to. I found out there was more women who were children when he molested them. I um, we were offered in the beginning when I came forward. We were offered anonymity um, by the police, um, which was great. You know, and then as the case, uh, as it moved on, and I knew they were they were very serious and they're taking it very seriously. Uh, they really wanted to um, do justice to the victims that had come forward in, um, against Rolf Harris. And there was many, many of them. And there's many of us from all over the world. And we all had very similar stories. So they put all these things forward as a part of the court cases, what they do. And I was asked to write a letter to the judge because all of a sudden, I think it's consolidated press over in the UK and Europe, they wanted access to the bad character witnesses. They wanted us, they wanted our names, they wanted our details. So I was asked how I felt about having my name released to the world basically. Um, and uh, I wrote a very succinct letter, which I was really pleased with. And uh, my answer to the judge was that if he thought that it was okay to drag my name through the press um, so that I could be uh, verbally assaulted uh, and maimed and, you know, basically all those sort of things that we know that people do. Um, that was his choice and that was his call. But I was still going to come forward because as far as I'm concerned, if I didn't stand forward for these women and come up and, and say my, tell my story and my truth, it was like they were getting assaulted all over again. So I was like, so be it, mate. If that's what you want to do, go for it. Um, I was chosen to be a bad character witness by the judge on the strength of that, which was great. He decided that um, the press weren't going to get um, access to us, which was wonderful. And I was granted lifetime anonymity, which was good. Um, however, there was a, after that happened, I was, um, I was at home by myself and I was watching a current affairs program. Uh, and I was the news, actually. I heard these words. I thought, hang on. I said that. And there's a split screen in front of me and there's all my words going up the screen and there's a male newsreader actually saying my words in the letter or the email that I'd sent to the judge. And I was, well, A, really laughed, couldn't believe it. B, stoked that I wrote a good letter. And C, couldn't believe how they got it. And then I realised that I was, I was, my story, whatever I said was part of like the public domain. But I had to be really careful with how I moved forward from now on because I was being watched. Um, even though they didn't know my name, um, uh, it was very important, you know, what was happening um, in and how I moved forward. I was really pleased for my family. My son was 12 at the time and my husband that I had lifetime in anonymity. Um, I still had everything lined up here with the police uh, when I when I left for, um, for England so that everything would be safe because it would really suck to have, you know, all the press camped in your driveway when your 12-year-old kid wants to go to school. That would be scary. Uh, the police in the UK sent, um, sent policemen here to interview my friends of 35 years who knew my story. Um, the police interviewed me um, and my husband. Um, 
they really made sure because I'd, I had not kept it a secret, there was quite a plethora of people they could actually interview, which was great. Um, so I was flown over there with a girlfriend, uh, which was wonderful as a, as a support person. And um, you really need a support person. It's yeah. really important, you know. I was, I was treated so well by the police over there. They looked after me so well, picked me up from the airport. Um, uh, the day before I was going to court, uh, when I went to court, um, we were smuggled through the back way. Uh, so we went to see by the press. Uh, I was in um, my own room inside uh, with my girlfriend, like a waiting room. We are probably in there for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And the whole time I was there, I had my um, earphones on. I was playing the same song over and over again. Now, this might sound weird, right? But when we play music, and I'm, I'm going to explain why before I tell you the song. When we play music, it puts us in a really good, a good, like a high endorphin state, right? And I didn't want to have any, I just wanted to be in my happy place. I'm a really happy, joyous person. I have really high levels. And I didn't want to think about the enormity of what I was doing because I didn't want any nerves to affect me. Because when I get nervous, it doesn't affect my head, it affects my stomach. And I didn't want to all of a sudden lose control and go vomit or, you know, or have diarrhea or anything like that. I just wanted to stay really calm and in a Zen place for me. So the song that I played is Happy by Pharrell Williams, but over and over and over and over because I'm happy. And it wasn't because I was happy to be here, be there. And it wasn't because I was happy that I was testifying. It was just a happy song for me. Uh, I can't tell you how many times over two hours that I listened to it, but it kept me so centred and it kept me in my natural state and it kept me not thinking about anything that I had to do or the press or anything. They um, In the lunchtime, um, everybody went to lunch and they took this lovely court the court man, I can't think of his name, um, he took us into the, where we were going to go. And uh, so it was empty. There was microphones everywhere. He showed me where I was going to stand, what was going to happen. There's a big glass cage because Rolf Harris was under arrest, kind of, I think, or something. I'm not sure. But there's a big glass cage in the middle where he was. Uh, all the press were behind him, uh, where they were going to go. So we're shown everything. We went back into the room and, and um, sang, you know, listened to my song a bit more. And then this lady came in and it turns out that she was uh, also taking the stand. They kept us all apart. Um, she came in and spoke, so I took this out. And she was the support lady for the woman who'd actually come forward. So they had all the Australians on the one day. And I never got to meet her, but to her support person, I got to give her a massive cuddle and say, please tell her that I'm here for her. I came here because I saw her. I came here for her. Here's a cuddle. Please give it to her before she goes on. Uh, so that was such a huge moment for me. I didn't need to meet her, but it was amazing that I got to pass this message on to her and it really empowered me and I hope that it empowered her. I believe that it did, knowing that there was another Aussie chick there that was there for her and it was great. Um, so when it was my turn, I got smuggled in with my girlfriend. She was kind of side, almost like a cupboard door into the, into the courtroom and it was packed, packed, packed. It was full of people. And I was given instructions not to look at him at all by my lovely policeman. Don't look at him. I want, you know, you stand here. I want you to look so if I'm in my, taking my stand, the judge is here, the jury's in front of me. I'm allowed to look just here and it's got the prosecution, uh, you know, both lawyers down here, both teams. And he said, don't look at him and don't look at anything else. I thought, I'm just going to do what I'm told. So I didn't look. 
I answered the questions. I even talked about my underpants I was wearing because back then it was the beginning of the G-string. It was like a triangle front and a string around and a triangle back, which is kind of why Rolf Harris kept trying to shove his hand further and further up my shorts because he couldn't feel my undies, right? So I talked about my undies and the, and the jury's laughing, you know, um, and I did everything. Look, it was good and the very, very end, and I got to tell my truth and they tried to trick me and all that sort of stuff as they do it at the very, very end, his lawyer called me a liar, which is her job and what she's meant to do. But when you're called a liar, I've just talked about your undies and I'm such an honest person, like I can't be bothered lying. Uh, I wouldn't have gone all the way over the other side of the world to lie. What, why, why, you know, uh, but it really threw me. And um, it was such a surprise and a shock that I snorted with derision. I'd never done that before. And I was, I was kind of, the anger and the upsetness just started building fast. And I turned around to get off the stand and I looked right at Rolf Harrison, his tennis thing. I looked right at him and I looked at nobody else. And I glared at him the entire time I walked out and I walked out and I'm looking and he turned his chair, he did not look at me once. He turned his entire chair around. I looked the other way and the press were behind him and they're watching me. It's called a stare down, I found out, staring Ralph Harris down as I walked out the courtroom. My girlfriend's sitting here. I'm going, let's go. I grabbed my bag and I, my anger and everything, I, I was like building up, building up. And I pushed the, the doors to get out of the courtroom and they were really big doors. Unbeknownst to me, they were really light. And I shoved them and I went, bang, <laughs> twice, bang. The whole courtroom's like, Hoo! Susie's left, you know. Ah! Um, so, wow. And then, uh, you know, and I'm out there and the policeman grabbed me. So when we see they took me into another room and I was just like, the emotions were flowing and I was upset. I was called a liar and I was given a cup of tea and, and I was like trying to breathe myself through it and come down. There's police there telling me that I'd done a great job. And then the man who, I can't remember his name right now, he's in charge of the whole thing. He came into me and he kneeled, kneeled, kneeled down, he stood in front of me and, you know, kneeled down in front of me and took my hand and told me what a great job I'd done and how proud he was of me and what a good thing I'd done and all that sort of stuff. And it was, it was a really huge moment and I felt, oh, it was just big. It was big, it was huge and I felt like I'd done the right thing and I calmed down and my breathing calmed down and it was done, my job was done. Um, and I got taken home with Ellie, my girlfriend, and uh, the very next day, the, the, uh, that night, the, um, the headlines of me around the world and I'll tell you what it's really freaky reading about yourself in the in the newspapers and the nameless faceless me because they weren't allowed to describe what I looked like and they weren't allowed to say my name and the press all seemed to write the same sort of story it's like one story is approved and then they all print it and my favorite I've got to say was Australian television makeup artist dramatically stares down Rolf Harris in court I'm like yeah because <laughs> That's cool. I was like, rah, power woman. <laughs> so everything that I read, I know it was so cool. My friends are at home and I couldn't tell many people, but there was just a few choice people that knew, which is like, that's us, easy. Rah! So it was really good. And reading that, um, I knew there are uh, lots of other witnesses coming forward. I knew there had witnesses that had been for, been, had come forward. I knew that there was a, a lady who had had to stand behind a blanket in the courtroom that they rigged up for her because she could not uh, eyeball him. She couldn't be seen. She only managed to get in court and she was 50. And that's just no good. And that does my head in. And my headline came out and it was it was strong and it was feisty. And I just thought, I hope this helps you, honey, because I'm here for you. And I'm really buffy, you know? 
Um, and so it was an empowering moment and all the headlines about me, I'm so pleased, were all very empowering, um, which I believe is what other victims needed. Uh, and that's why we come forward and step forward and do what we do. And that's why I come forward and tell my story to empower other women and men to come forward and tell their story because that's going to help them heal. So we have this collective healing happening. It's like shooting out around the world with the press and what's going on. More and more women came forward. We ended up, um, it, was, it was amazing. But, but the very next day, strangely enough, I, I got discovered by the BBC. I was found by the press day two. And because, um, pretty sure it's because uh, they found my CV online and on my CV, it says I work for Rolf Harris. And the court, you know, in, in great creativity, nicknamed me SD. Mm, okay, for Susie Dent. So, yeah, that's real hard to find, isn't it? So, yeah, okay, right. Real good there. Love the, creative, the creativity there. And then, so then for the next, I was hounded by this producer of the BBC. It was hilarious. You know, I told her I wasn't coming forward, uh, that it wasn't about me, that I didn't wish to be made the poster girl for groping, because um, uh, I totally appreciated exactly what was going to happen to me if I did come forward. And uh, it's what happened to other women who came forward. So I said no um, several times. And uh, even along this journey with her, the press are very manipulative. Yes. At one stage, she actually called me on the telephone and she hadn't done that. She'd been emailing it uh, to tell me that, um, that my name had been released in court, right, which meant catastrophic things happening here to my family. Um, and I was in England and who's going to think they're going to find me, but they could find my family, they could find my friends, and that's not cool. So I ring my husband and... I was a bit panicked and he's just like, no, they didn't. She's lying to you. This is just all rubbish. So I breathed into it, had my girlfriend with me and thought, no, I've just got to chill. And, of course, no, it was rubbish. And I contacted the, my police liaison and it was a long weekend and he was away and I'm all of a sudden I'm kind of, I'm online, I'm looking. I'm like, all of a sudden, ah, have I been exposed? And I'm looking at everything and there's, all I can see is there's stuff about me all over the world but no name. But it got me into this panicked kind of frenzy. Because when you get exposed with things like this, I had to give them photos of what I looked like yeah. in 1986. And then, uh, so there's, and again, public record, we've spoken about that. And then there's photos of what I look like now, right? And I look too bad now. And then they, then they, they, the press will take photos, for instance, what my legs look like now. And then, would I do her now? Would I do her then? This is what people are like, would I, would I have groped her? Would I have, would, do I find her attractive? Is she attractive now? Would I do her now? And that's what happened. That's what the press do. And that's what people do. Um, you know, and there's people that are little keyboard warriors and they, they judge. And back then what was happening was um, all the negativity that is put out there by, um, by the press and by people judge. And I reached out to um, the policeman that was looking after me and it was a long weekend. So he was on holiday. So I couldn't reach out to him. Um, so I had to just keep myself calm and stay off looking at things on social media. Me and my girlfriend were going around England, sorry, going around London, um, travelling around looking at uh, museums and art galleries because uh, there was such a long way to go. We decided we'd stay for a month when we got there. So it's really the beginning of our holiday. So I thought I'm just going to have to breathe through it and chill out um, and trust my husband and believe that, you know, she didn't actually, my name didn't get released in court and it didn't. It was distressing that I was baited like that, though, and I was baited like that by this uh, producer because she wanted 
she wanted the show because it was a big deal. It's all that advertising bucks, isn't it? She even said to me, she said, um, oh, we can we can blank your face out. Right? We can even get someone else, you know, with, with a different voice. And I thought, and I mean, I've worked in television for a long time and I'm just thinking, yeah, I think we've established that I'm an Australian television makeup artist, babe. You know, I think they're going to expect an Australian. But anyway, whatever. Um, so it was funny. I said no all the time. And she eventually chilled out and went away. When it all uh, was at the end, though, even the police wanted to uh, talk to me and what, were interested in whether I'd talk to their PR department and come forward and do a story because everybody, it was the biggest thing, biggest, hugest story in the world at the time. And really the beginning of the Me Too movement of women coming forward and telling their truth in historical cases. Um, and Operation U Tree was this huge operation in the UK that captured a lot of British entertainers and Rolf Harris was just one, caught in a very big net. It was amazing what the British police did. Yay, really. Um, and then years later, so he got found guilty, which was amazing. He was sentenced to five years and nine months. He was sent to jail at, I think he was 84 or 86 when he went there. He still didn't, um, I don't believe he's sorry or anything. Don't care. That's not my journey. I didn't never thought about him getting sentenced. I gave it no thought because that wasn't my job. I wasn't the jury. My job was to come forward and tell my truth about my day. Um, and a bad character witness is someone that says, okay, well, this, this is how this person behaves, you know. This is how he touched me. And I was the oldest bad character witness out of, I think there was, um, there was only six of us um, and out of the witnesses who had been assaulted. There was another man who was a bad character witness. He'd seen a makeup artist getting groped and he actually thought it was me. It's like, no, there's lots of us. Even my girlfriend who came forward as one of my witnesses and was interviewed by the police, she'd been groped by Rolf Harris on another separate occasion when she was working as a makeup artist in England. I mean, you know, the man's got, the man's the octopus, right? He has a thing for makeup artists. He likes to touch. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, uh, and uh, so that's what happened in 2014. And then after that, we see um, uh, the, the the hashtag Me Too is uh, released, I think it was in 2017 or something. Uh, and, and the movement is starting around the world and it's starting to gain momentum um, from 2014 onwards. And uh, women and are coming forward and, and telling their truth and encouraging other sisters to come forward with historical stuff. Um, and the reason why we come forward is because it affects us for our whole life. You know, sometimes these things that happen to us when we're children um, affect us. They affect trust issues, our body issues, everything. You know, um, and uh, what happened to me when I was a twelve affected me a lot. So the twelve-year-old girl in me was very vindicated inside when I came forward and. On a kind of a herbal night, I was I got healed when I was in um, in England. I booked in to go inside the walls of Stonehenge with my girlfriend, and I booked a healing with a shamanic healer. And um, my dad's traced back to the Viking days. And my spiritual journey on this journey is I felt that I'd had all these like spirits that my dead ancestors with me, um, pushing me along and helping me along. I felt I was quite, I felt like I was like a leader of the pack, if you like, but they're all spiritual beings. And um, it was very um, um, spiritually emotional kind of time for me because I was very aware of what I was doing. It was a really big deal. And I was really being coached along. My husband was kind of suffering from the depression at the time. So it wasn't as emotionally supportive as he could have been for me. So I was really quite alone in my journey. He was going through anger issues too. So I was really quite alone in my journey. Um, and uh, so I booked in this healing. 
And inside the walls of Stonehenge was such a spiritual place and the healer that took us in there were like banging the drum, you know, and we walked in the way our ancestors would have walked in um, and with a staff with a crystal on it and, and we got blessed with water from the chalice well, which is a religious place that Jesus is said to have gone to. Uh, buckets of tears flowed out of me. I think the 12-year-old girl just went, Bleh! Um, everything, every man, every everything, it all just got, I forgave, I learnt forgiveness inside the walls of Stonehenge. It all just poured out of me. My face changed. I looked different from the beginning of my Stonehenge journey to an hour later after my healing. It was profound. It was profound. Um, I was changed. It was the beginning of my journey to the adult that you see before you today. Um, and um, it was really a very profound thing, uh, and it was really wonderful, and it, it brought me to alert healing. My father had died only eight months before this was happening, and I realised when I was in England that I hadn't, I was still talking about him in present tense, and my girlfriend that was with me, we've been friends since I was 21, and, uh, you know, and she's, we've, we're like, we're best friends, so she knows me really well. We got to go to these places and, and share, um, you know, my, I, could, I could talk through this journey that I was going on. That was pretty big, you know. It was when you, I had never thought of myself as a victim, Smither. And when I was in England, I was a victim. And they called me a victim and they referred to me as a victim. I never thought of myself as a victim. And I, and, and, they were called, and I was a victim of sexual assault. I never thought about that. So it was a bit of a mind trip for me going over there, as I think it was for all the other women that went forward. Um, you know, what he did to me was no big deal, really. It was just another bloke who groped me all day and I had a bad day with a dirty old man. But going back to that day, went back to my 12-year-old. I went back to the, you know, I had to think about the things and the men that had happened before then and, you know, actually having been, you know, raped or had unwanted sex, I used to call it, you know. I think it depends as we're going through these journeys of assault. For me, it really depended on not so much what box I put it inside my head but how I described it to myself and how I dealt with it. I think there were words that I didn't wish to use for me because they were too harsh and too hard. But that was how I chose to deal with my journey and it worked for me to, to keep me a bit more whole than I might've been if I'd have sunk into being a victim, you know what I mean? Um, so I had a little bit of getting over that when I came back, the healing was amazing. Uh, I, uh, I got to, um, I've spoken to you about how I covered myself up uh, and 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 dressed down and all that sort of stuff and and I've mentioned how my husband was depressed. He was kind of depressed for eight years and he was angry. He was angry and he was depressed. He was suffering from anxiety and things were not happy in my life. And in 2017, I was pretty miserable and both he and I were stuck in this groundhog day of his anger and his depression. And I was going down and down and down and down and down. And it was happening. It had been happening since 2014. Um, I was quite skinny in 2014 because you develop anxiety things, you know. Um, however, I, um, I realised in 2017 as I was listening to motivational videos and my walks, motivational speaking on my walk that we're the only ones that can change our lives. No one's going to change it for us. Nobody's going to save us. Uh, and I realised that I needed to save myself. So I put my hands up to source love. God, if you will, whatever you want to call our universe and life. And I reached out with both hands and I put my manifestation, my wish out um, and that I wanted to change, that I needed to change and that I needed help. A couple of weeks later, 
right? Um, I uh, I got a call. I got contacted by the Mrs. Earth Australia beauty pageant. So far, you have heard her inspiring story. In next episode, you will hear her transformation from a 12-year-old low self-esteem girl to be a Mrs. Earth Australia 2017. Okay, thank you for tuning in and you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.